Good afternoon again, everybody, and welcome to the John Kane Luncheon for November, our last for 2023. I'd like to begin, as always, by paying my respects to the traditional owners of the lands, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. We meet today on land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land, which was never ceded. Um, Hello, I'm Emma. I think I know all of you by now. Uh, and you've got, you've got me this month. Um, we had uh, investigated the option of having someone to come and talk to us about the terrible situation in the Middle East. That proved to be impossible. But I do start today with some qualified good news, which is has just been announced that the Israeli cabinet has agreed to a five-day ceasefire uh, for a hostage exchange. So there is something there, uh, 50 of the Israeli hostages to be released, uh, I think it's 30 children, 8 mothers and 12 older women, um, and Netanyahu has, in his great wisdom, uh, said that for every additional 10 hostages released they'll extend the ceasefire by a day. There has been no mention of the return of Palestinian prisoners, but we expect that's part of the deal. So a small chink of light there in what is an incredibly distressing situation. Um, but we decided we are at the 18-month mark of the uh, Albanese Labor government, uh, so presumably about another 18 months to go, uh, less than that before we're back into election mode, of course, sadly, um, but also to reflect at the end of the year on per capita's successes uh, on our agenda, on what we think has been achieved um, by the government so far and our role in it, and what we think is still to do. Um, it's been a busy year for us and a quite disrupted one given my personal life imploding somewhat at the beginning of the year. Um, but fortunately I have an excellent team, many of whom are with us today, some of whom are not. I've got quite a lot of staff on leave at the moment. Um, and uh, we're heading into the end, as I said, of a, a busy and challenging year, but looking forward to <clears throat> some real opportunities and challenges in the months ahead. Um, the first thing I want to reflect on, which I don't think is getting nearly enough attention in the mainstream press, um, and probably for you know, ideological reasons, uh, is that per capita, at least for the last five years or so, possibly longer, has been pushing very hard uh, for, our national, for our federal government to re-embrace full employment as a core policy goal of monetary and fiscal policy. And they've done so. Uh, it's not getting, as I said, a lot of attention, but both the uh, review of the Reserve Bank and the employment white paper, although the word full was dropped from the title, uh, when you actually read through the paper itself, has a very explicit commitment to maintaining full employment. They haven't gone as far as we would have liked in terms of defining that against the Nairu or the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. Um, but there have been very strong messages, I think, from the Treasurer and Central Agency Ministers that maintaining full employment or a very low rate of employment is central to this government's agenda. And if there's one area on which I think they are making good strides, it's in the industrial relations field, uh, which is related to that. Um, our unemployment rate's currently 3.7%. It went up by 0.1% last month. Uh, <clears throat> partly, although there were another 55,000 jobs created in the economy, we saw a big in increase in the rate of participation, particularly among women. Um, I spoke on a panel on Tuesday, uh, Monday morning, Monday morning <laughs> this week for the Council of Single Mothers and Their Children. 
and their new survey of single mothers around the country found that compared to their last survey in 2018, 65% of single mothers were in paid employment at that time. It's now 77% and another 8% are actively seeking work. That is entirely due to the drop in our unemployment rate. So what happens when unemployment drops below that sort of four and a half, five percent range and the labour market becomes much tighter is that people who are otherwise overlooked by employers for opportunities to find work are given a chance and that is nowhere nearly as strong as with single parents and people with disabilities. I haven't got the latest disability stats but I would expect to see an improvement in their employment prospects as well. Of course, though, at the same time, we have uh, message, very strong messages from the Governor of the Reserve Bank that in order to control inflation, unemployment will need to rise to 4.5% again. And you can bet that the people that will miss out when that happens are those single parents that have managed to get back into the paid uh, workforce and those people with other barriers to employment. <clears throat> so seeing uh, very clearly within that white paper, uh, within the Women's Economic Security Statement, and in uh, the Social Services Minister's approach to disability employment, a strong commitment to keeping that rate of unemployment low and removing the barriers for people that have been structurally locked out of the labour market is really heartening and something I think we've had uh, quite a bit of influence on with the work we've done over the last few years. Um, I think it was five weeks after the 2019 election that I published a piece for The Guardian saying full employment had to be the focus of a new of the Labor government um, and that the only way we would convince people to invest in the transition to a new economy was by ensuring that good secure jobs came with it. Uh, it was the lodestar at the centre of the book that Janet and I co-edited back in 2020 um, and a lot of the themes that were in that book, what happens next, can be seen in what the party took to the election and what they've delivered in the first 18 months. So as well as that commitment to full employment, um, which is reflected in the Industrial Relations Bill, the Closing Loopholes Bill that's before the Parliament at the moment, we saw the party adopt a lot of the language we've been pushing around national reconstruction, obviously like full employment, drawing on our own history in the 1945 white paper um, and the reconstruction agenda that the Curtin and Chifley government set out at the time. Um, the investment in the reconstruction fund, uh, the uh, terminology around manufacturing and not insignificantly Jim Chalmers address to the Melbourne Institute and Australian newspapers uh, policy forum in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago that really set out a very bold government agenda for industry policy and for re-embracing industry policy and for the role of government in shaping the economy. These are actually quite radical ideas in Australia <laughs> over the last 30 years. They're things that have been poo-pooed for a long time. Um, and that uh, Social and Economic Outlook Conference is not a lefty love-in. Uh, it is, it is co-sponsored by the Australian, but if you actually looked at the topics on the agenda, it was the care economy, it was reconstruction, it was full employment, it was investing in manufacturing. Uh, it read a little bit like a chapter list from our book, uh, Janet, so I was quite chuffed with that. And I do urge you to have a look at Jim Chalmers' speech. Uh, he, he threads this wording very carefully so as not to scare the horses but there's actually quite uh, a bold agenda underneath a lot of that careful language. Uh, what else have they done that we think is good and that we would like to take some credit for? Obviously, success has many parents, um, but we, we like to think we've played a part. Significant rebuilding of the Australian public sector, of <coughs> public service um, in Canberra. 
a reduction of spending on outsourcing uh, to consultants. Obviously, PricewaterhouseCoopers helped them immensely there <laughs> by being shown to be pretty crook, um, which gave them a lot of cover for doing what I think we all knew they needed to do for a long time, which was uh, reinvest in the expertise of the independent public service and away from those uh, less uh, independent interests in the consulting sector. Um, so we think that's a good thing, and the CPSU is certainly pretty happy. Um, we're already seeing murmurings and anger in the Fin Review and the Australians saying that uh, strong employment in the public sector is driving inflation. There's no actual evidence of that whatsoever. Um, so it just shows you that uh, things are happening that they don't like, which means they're probably good. Uh, significant changes to early childhood education and care, something that, again, we pushed for a long time. Um, one of the greatest productivity, if not the greatest productivity investment we can make uh, is in the future of our people and that starts with children. Um, I am, uh, what the government has done here is obviously um, increase the rebate significantly, um, lift the uh, caps on when people can access it and there does remain an intention to move to a universal early childhood education and care system uh, in future and um, the uh, institutions charged with looking at that are still uh, in that middle of that work. Encouragingly, um, our friend recently of the Grattan Institute, Danielle Wood, who's now the new chair of the Productivity Commission. Uh, and I'm thrilled about that because there's someone running the Productivity Commission that understands the non-market sector. Danielle has been a real champion of investment in early childhood education and care. And when we were on a panel together a couple of months ago and I was railing about the Productivity Commission report, that claimed there'd been no productivity improvements in the early childhood sector for 20 years, completely ignoring <coughs> the productivity benefits of investing in those kids and their lifelong outcomes and the productivity benefits of women being able to go back to work, um, pointed out that perhaps we're using the wrong tools to measure productivity in the care and services sector, to which Danielle said, here, here. She's now in charge of the ship, so I think we can expect a much better approach there and hopefully a good reception for our more bolshy ideas too. Yeah. <clears throat> um, an increase in the minimum wage is not to be sniffed at and certainly not the 15% uh, increase that was granted to aged care workers who are some of the most overlooked, underpaid and most important workers in our society. Those things would not have happened without a shift to a Labor government. And while wage growth still is woefully behind the cost of living, we did see for the first time last quarter real wage growth slightly ahead of inflation. 0.1 of a percent, <laughs> but it's something and it's the first time that's happened in 12 years since the GFC. Uh, so wages are moving, but we do have a persistent sticky inflation problem that I will get to when I talk about things that are yet to be done. <laughs> Uh, the Reconstruction Fund, as I mentioned earlier, came um, out of a lot of conversations that many of us in the labour movement and the union movement and in the think tank world had had with the party in opposition. Um, but if you actually look at where that's been focused on critical minerals, on value adding um, to exports and to mining um, <coughs> uh, products, there's a lot of thinking that's come out of per capita and out of the Centre for New Industry and again from the book um, that I co-edited with Janet on that front. Um, <clears throat> on international affairs, and I would, I would probably, sh I should probably defer to John Langmore here, um, but uh, other than the very recent, very distressing developments in the Middle East, um, I think Australia has been fortunately 
playing an important and much improved role on the world stage uh, lately. Penny Wong uh, was very clear that her goal was to re-engage with our region, with our Pacific neighbours, um, and I think there's, there's been a demonstration that, that has been happening and has worked, um, and I think the re-engagement with China as an export partner as well has turned up dividends. Um, it is typical that Labor comes to power not only in an economic crisis but in a time of global uh, challenge and difficulty. Um, but I think uh, everyone is relieved that we, at least we have some grown-ups back in charge of our international relations. The care economy <coughs> and women's economic security. Uh, the fact that we have a government that talks about it is a huge step in the right direction. The fact that we have a government that is committed and seems to be willing to accept the recommendations of Sam Mostyn's uh, Women's Economic uh, Equality Task Force, or WIT as it's now known, um, to report regularly on progress towards gender equality would seem to be, I think, a good thing. There are some gaps in that strategy, and again, they're caused by budget and inflationary pressures, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, but the recognition of those essential service workers, aged care workers, early childhood workers, um, managing and, and ensuring the disability uh, scheme is uh, sustainable and effective, um, I think is well overdue attention to some things that we know uh, really underpin the foundations of a good society. And then of course there's the energy um, and electrification uh, transformation. Uh, certainly while many of Labor's climate goals uh, remain inadequate um, and its commitment to continuing to open new uh, gas and coal operations is disappointing. Um, we do, however, have, I think, the right focus when it comes to uh, electrification of the energy grid um, and to focusing on how we can uh, support households to make that transition. But again, there's some work to be done there, which is what I'll get on to now. Um, areas where we still would like to see an impact. Uh, housing and I'll get Matt to join me in a moment and talk a little bit about what we're doing at our Centre for Equitable Housing. Uh, certainly, while housing has been a very contested uh, policy issue over the last uh, 18 months or so, particularly between the left and the left, uh, it is certainly true that we see a much better and bigger agenda and ambition towards housing uh, from the federal government than we have for at least 30 years. Uh, so however much more investment we need in social housing, the fact that there's $3 billion on the table and a housing future fund in place is more than we've seen uh, in that space since the 1980s. Uh, and the fact that the federal government's even back in the business of, of building and investing in housing is a very good thing. Uh, it's about now getting that right and getting that ambition right, and I'll get Matt to talk to you about that in a moment. Uh, tax reform is always the third rail. Um, and actually underpins everything uh, else that we do. Um, and I would argue this is the area in which the government's not showing enough uh, courage um, and enough confidence, and arguably not responding to the reality of uh, community sentiment on the ground. We were the very first organisation in Australia to come out against the Stage 3 tax cuts when they were announced in 2017 by then Treasurer Scott Morrison. We had a media release out within 10 minutes saying this is the destruction of progressive taxation and will permanently uh, destroy our ability to pay for services that we all rely on. Every other progressive organisation in the country has caught up with us since, which is great. Um, and there's now a lot of pressure on the government to look at those tax cuts. Um, they are not only indefensible from a uh, moral and ethical point of view, uh, but particularly now that we're in um, the situation we're in with inflation, they are completely economically indefensible. They will pump money into the pockets of people that are already spending and are actually the culprits for driving inflation at the moment. They seem to be <clears throat> a particularly 
sticky problem for the government because they don't want to break promises. Um, but when it comes to tax across the board, I think we can see a treasurer that is very aware of what needs to be done um, and quite hamstrung by the political challenges of doing so. Um, a similar argument's being made about housing in next week's quarterly essay from Ellen Kohler. Um, but we're more optimistic at per capita. We think if we gave up on the idea that we could change these things, we should probably go and do something else. Um, and so these are all areas that we will engage with um, consistently and concentratedly over the coming months. Um, similarly, our investment in foundational <coughs> jobs, uh, the lifting of wages uh, for foundational economy workers, not just in the care sector, but across those important um, jobs and seeing uh, you know, predictions today that we're likely to lose something like 4% of manufacturing jobs, a lot of blue collar jobs over the coming five years. Um, there is a distinct and obvious and urgent role for government in ensuring that doesn't happen and in replacing those jobs with good secure jobs in new industries. That's where the importance of that industry policy piece comes in. Um, so what are we doing and how are we tackling this? Well, you'll have seen um, this year we've grown considerably despite some challenges on the home front. Uh, it's a little over 18 months now since we launched the Centre for New Industry with our former colleague Shirley Jackson, who's now at the University of Melbourne. Uh, but that centre continues and we continue to do work in that space about industrial transformation and particularly about ensuring that our industrial rights, work rights and industrial standards are carried through to the new economy, uh, not just in a uh, case of ensuring that casual and gig work is given more security, uh, but to ensure that new industries uh, and new, um, uh, the new forms of work that come with those post-carbon jobs carry the same industrial standards that we have fought so hard for over the last hundred years. That centre is also particularly involved in issues around education and training and skills investment. Uh, we've had uh, quite a few successes there. I think um, the number of TAFE courses across the country that are now being provided free of charge are really encouraging. Uh, we're seeing uh, suggestions for things like $40,000 scholarships for nursing students. We're working at the moment on a piece of work making the argument that social work students should have their placements paid. It's little known. Um, that six months or a thousand hours is expected for many students in social work and health and social assistance of unpaid placements. We would not expect that of an apprentice carpenter or an apprentice plumber, uh, but we do expect it of women in the caring professions. What it means is that we're getting less and less, fewer and fewer people able to do those courses, particularly from the backgrounds that have a lived experience of the issues they're trying to solve. Um, we launched early this year the Centre for Equitable Housing and I will get Matt up here in just a moment to talk to you about what we've been doing there. Um, but that's very quickly established itself as a voice of authority in the housing debate. Um, not only setting out the problems but pro pro providing real solutions that can actually work uh, as opposed to some of the more populist grandstanding we see on the right and left uh, extremes when it comes to housing. It is and has, we've been saying this for a long, long time now, um, going to be the fundamental economic equality issue that faces us. It, we have um, created a situation in which it is simply impossible uh, to get into the housing market based on your own hard work without some form of inheritance. That goes against what everyone likes to think Australia stands for. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of attention on a rental crisis and certainly we're seeing significant spikes in rents between tenancies right across the market but our own research uh, really revealed something that we knew intuitively, which is the real crisis is amongst low-income renters, and it's been there for 30 years, and it's now acute. Um, and while in the short term, 
uh, improving rates of Commonwealth rent assistance is very welcome. What we really need to see is a massive expansion of social housing, public housing in particular, and a re-entry of the government is, as a real non-market player in that space. Um, and I'll get that up in one moment to talk more about the real focus of the centre on, on the National Housing and Homelessness Plan and what we want to advocate for there. Um, but two things I will flag with you. On the 5th of November, we are launching the centre of the public square at Per Capita. That's in partnership with Essential Media. Um, Peter Lewis uh, and Jordan Gower, who were with the Centre for Responsible Technology at the Australia Institute, are coming across to us and we're going to expand that remit so we're not just talking about platforms, we're talking about how do we rebuild a public square that is within the ownership and control of the people and not of big tech executives and big tech companies. Um, so that launches in the evening of Tuesday the 5th of December at Trades Hall Council. It will also serve as our end of year thank you to all of you, so I do hope you can come along. Uh, we'll be recording the Burning, Pod uh, Burning Platforms podcast as part of that event. And just have a few drinks to celebrate what's been a big year and our agenda for the year ahead. Um, and I'll also flag that we, that same day at lunchtime we will be hosting a webinar with Alan Kohler on his new quarterly essay on housing. Um, we've got a lot to do. <laughs> if we can encourage some more bold uh, prescriptions on some of these key issues that are driving a lot of people to independence and greens, particularly around <coughs> the public square issues, truth, uh, truth in politics, integrity, housing, um, and that intergenerational question of inequity. Uh, these are all issues that Labor has owned in the past. Uh, and needs to find the courage to do so again, to say that our tax system isn't working for most people, that we have created now. I think I said on Radio National this morning, this intergenerational crisis has been a long time brewing, but like all crises, they happen gradually and then suddenly. Um, and we're now at a tipping point uh, where we see a real divide between the generations. <clears throat> but what will emerge from that, of course, is uh, two-class society because a lot of those younger people that are currently feeling the pain will inherit a significant amount of money and a lot of the others won't um, and that really undoes a lot of the gains of the post-war era here in Australia. Um, I'm going to ask Matt to join me now because one of the big um, things that we have been focused on, we've had some real success and I want to congratulate and thank Matt and Lucy who's not here and Margaret and others that have worked in the Centre for Equitable Housing. It has uh, gone from zero to 100 very quickly this year and has made a really big impact uh, on policy decisions at both state and federal level, um, particularly around uh, rental reforms, um, around the social housing agenda, uh, but has also really connected with experts in the field and with the public. Um, and our big focus at the moment is on a better national framework. So, Matt, over to you. Thanks, Emma. Um, yeah, so it is pretty much a year exactly since we launched the Centre for Equitable Housing, um, which was an initiative that came out of some work that Emma has been doing for a number of years and I jumped in on a couple of years ago as well, looking at housing as a kind of a key um, lens through which we can understand inequality and uh, a lack of social mobility in Australia. And obviously, we've, uh, the Labour government and we have come to housing at exactly the right time, or the wrong time maybe, the, the worst time in housing for a number of decades. Um, we uh, first conducted a, a national survey on people's attitudes and experiences of housing in late December last year, and we found a very marked decline in affordability, uh, people's faith in the housing system, um, and actually a very broad uh, belief in 
policy reform as being necessary and uh, politically acceptable, which is something that we're really pushing the uh, federal government on at the moment. For example, we found that for swing voters swinging away from Labour, eight out of ten of them put housing in the top of their list for their reasons for choosing a party at the next election. For the Libs, it's nine out of ten. So clearly there's a huge electoral uh, importance for the government to get this right and to be a little more bold. So I'll just talk a little bit about um, what the government has been doing in housing so far since they took government 18 months ago. Um, the big thing, of course, is the Housing Australia Future Fund, a $10 billion future fund in which the proceeds are spent on social and affordable housing, uh, estimated to be a, a minimum of $500 million a year. Um, the enormous political fight that that engendered um, hasn't been welcomed by the housing community and the homelessness community. Um, there was, it was seen to be a bit of political grandstanding on the side of the Greens. Ultimately, there was the leveraging of an extra few billion dollars into housing um, from that fight, which is a good thing. Um, now, the Housing Australia Future Fund, is it enough? Clearly not. We know that housing uh, is a very expensive uh, policy area for the government to be engaged in, and we need to see a large amount um, more commitment and funding uh, than that. But it's a good start, and it's uh, something that is p p protected into future governments um, so that uh, the proceeds will always flow through to social or affordable housing regardless of which government is in which party is in power. Other than that we've seen the 15% increase to Commonwealth rent assistance. Um, I believe ACOS's preferred increase was 40% so we're not seeing the increase at a scale at which would be uh, appropriate to the costs for renters. Um, Clearly, this is happening at a point at which rents are accelerating faster than at any point for a number of decades. Um, we're also seeing mortgage stress at one of its highest rates in history by some metrics. So we clearly have a lot of problems. Again, CRA alone, it can't fix the problem. We know that the supply of affordable housing for low-income renters is very, very tight. Competition is extraordinary. And if a real estate agent gets offered an application from a single mother with uh, four kids and a dog um, and a single bloke who has got a job, they're going to choose the single bloke. Um, we know that's a problem and we know that the market can't fix that problem. And that's where we need to see greater government engagement in building, managing um, and maintaining our public housing stock. Um, outside of those initiatives, we've also seen uh, government establish new institutional frameworks for engagement between states and the federal government. So we've had the National Housing Finance and Investment Corporation uh, remit increased. We've seen Homes, Home, Homes Australia, Homes Australia, yeah, Homes Australia established as the new peak body for housing in the federal government. So we have in place some new institutional arrangements that should help improve or could help improve the situation for housing policy, uh, informed decision making between states and federal government but we do need to see that translated into action. And the big issue there for us is in the new National Housing and Homelessness Plan, which is the federal government's 10-year plan on how they intend to engage on housing for the next decade. This is a really cornerstone document, um, one that in the past under the Commonwealth State Housing Agreements was critical in setting out Australia's housing policy to ensure that everybody could, or as many people as possible could um, access an affordable, appropriate, stable, secure home. Now what we're seeing in the federal government at the moment is uh, an ambition 
a written, written and spoken ambition towards setting a new uh, framework for housing policy that will go some way to addressing this huge intergenerational problem that we've set up for ourselves in housing. However, the uh, current policy plan and the consultation process is not there at all. So we do need to see a very, uh, a far more ambitious commitment from the federal government on this in terms of establishing a document that has a mission to house all Australians uh, and to end homelessness, for example, um, and then the follow-on policies and critically funding arrangements that flow on from that. So that's a big part of our work over the coming six to 12 months will be to organise and lobby and advocate for a far more ambitious housing, uh, housing plan for the government. Um, other than that, as Emma said, we've been working on a number of areas. We've seen some wins. Um, we've had some good engagement with the Victorian state government on areas like short-term rentals, um, seeing some of our policy suggestions enacted into legislation, um, and also improving renters' rights as well. So while there are many more areas in the rental space we want to see improvements on, uh, we have seen some, some goals reached there. Um, so as a research centre in its first year of uh, action, we're really pleased uh, with where we've got to, uh, but we hope to see far more action and engagement with the federal government here on. Thank you. Thank you.